Please turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We are at the, we're working through the Sermon on the Mount, and we are at the tail end of the main body of the sermon. Uh, The sections that are left after today's passage are really conclusions and exhortations to respond uh, positively to what Jesus is saying, and He has the the, the narrow gate and the broad gate, the tree and its fruit, uh, building your house on the rock. Those are all concluding exhortations that come, and we'll be following those in in the coming weeks, Lord willing. Today, I'm just gonna, we're just covering one single verse. This is Matthew 7, verse 12. It is the golden rule, another one of the most famous statements in all of Scripture. For the sake of getting the flow of what we covered last week, I'm going to begin in chapter 7, verse 1, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 12. This is the word of the Lord, Matthew 7, verse 1. <clears throat> Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this all-encompassing command that Jesus says, in some sense, summarizes the law and the prophets is an astonishingly high standard that none of us meet like we should. God, I pray that we would be broken by the standard here and see ways that we have fallen short, that we would be humbled by the time we come to your table, the the Lord's table at the end of the sermon, that we would be humbled by our sin, convicted, that we would be repentant, that we would see the forgiveness and reconciliation in Christ that is offered, and that we would begin by your grace to truly fulfill this command in the power of Your Spirit, that we would begin more and more to think about others and to do to them as we would wish them to do unto us. God, be with us in this time. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me just say as a word of introduction before we get into the main part of the sermon, a word of introduction uh, is where this verse falls in the Sermon on the Mount. So, in its most immediate context, it comes at the end of the passage I just read, which is 7, 1 through 12. So, in the most immediate context, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, 
in verses 1 through 5 would be, don't use different weights and measures when we evaluate others from when we evaluate ourselves. We don't want to be the person with the two-by-four sticking out of our face, like Jesus says last week, when we're trying to evaluate the speck of sawdust in someone else's eye. That is judging in a double standard. We're excusing our own sin, and we're being hypercritical of another person's sin. That is not doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, is it? That, that, that's not it. So, in its most immediate context, it probably applies to that text right before us. But... In its larger context, if you'll flip back with me, I want to keep reminding you of the the thesis of this sermon. If you look back at chapter 5, I think this is the thesis of the sermon. Really, 5, 17 to 20 is sort of the the thesis of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus argues for throughout the main body of the sermon. And let me just remind you of a couple verses. Verse 17, and this sort of forms a bookend with our text today. Look at verse 17, "'Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets.'" I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And you see there, that's the beginning of the main body of the sermon. He mentions the law and the prophets, and then he concludes the main body of the sermon by mentioning the law and the prophets. So those are, it's almost a perfect bookend for the main body of the sermon. The Beatitudes are introduction. The main body is about the law and the prophets. And then in 7.12, he says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That's the main body of the sermon, and then he'll move into his conclusion. So that that is how the the sermon, I believe, is structured. Now, let's get into the main point for today. What does the golden rule really mean? And that's the question we'll try to answer during this sermon. What does the golden rule really mean? And I have five points. Points are not really short points. I I maybe could try harder to make these shorter if you're writing them down, but I'll give you the points. Uh, uh, Here are five points that we'll work through. Number one, the golden rule does not mean that you treat others according to your own tastes and preferences. The golden rule does not mean that you treat others according to your own tastes and preferences. What I mean by that is, say there's a husband in the room who just absolutely loves uh, camping, just lives for camping, and his wife, let's just say, can't stand camping, wants nothing to do with camping. There's a reason why we built houses, she might say. We, we, we live in the home, okay? We don't go out and live in the woods. And the husband says, well, if, if I want to love my wife as I love myself here, if I want to do unto others as I have them do unto me, well, I love camping. She must love, it would be great. I'm going to plan a week-long camping trip. It's going to be fantastic. And you tell your wife, see, I was thinking about, I would do unto others as I have them do unto me. I would love for someone to plan me a week-long camping trip. Honey, I have planned you a week-long camping trip. She looks at you and goes, I don't think that's what the golden rule means, Okay, and uh, as a husband, I have uh, I could tell you funny stories and just make fun of myself for the next half hour about things I've done for Kelly that were really thinking for for myself, really thinking my own preferences, and then thinking Kelly would love this too, and it just doesn't work out that way. So, the golden rule is not taking my personal preferences or my personal uh, you know tastes and applying them to everyone I meet. This is a typical mistake that all kinds of people can make. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. That was the first and the shortest point. Point number two. The golden rule arises from a deep love for God. The golden rule arises from a deep love for God. If, you, if you'll turn with me to Matthew 22 to your right, Matthew chapter 22. And look down at verse 35. Matthew 22, verse 35, this is the 
Last week of Jesus' life, just a few days before He is crucified, Matthew 22, verse 35, and one of them, a lawyer, asked Him a question to test Him, "'Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law?' And He said to him, "'You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment.'" And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, I know this point is not going to be anything new probably for most of you, but it's so important I I, I want to make this point. The command to love our neighbor as ourself can only happen if we are fulfilling the first commandment and the greatest commandment first. A love for neighbor comes from a love for for God. I know that that's probably obvious to many of you, but that is fundamentally important. We're not talking about humanism here, or we just have a bunch of people loving each other in a secular way. No, this is fundamentally a love for God, loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what does that do? That produces a love for those made in God's image. It produces a love for our neighbor. If I am having a problem loving you, or you're having a problem loving me, that ultimately goes back to our own struggle with a love for God. If my love for God begins to shrivel up, it will become much harder for me to show kindness, patience, uh, goodness to others. The fruit of the Spirit begin to shrivel up when I am not loving God first and foremost in my life. Now, that may sound really obvious, but let me say a couple of ways this is misunderstood. First of all, Jesus says there, that's Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine: you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, can I just clear the air on this one? This gets sometimes put the wrong way. Jesus is not commanding us in this verse to love ourselves more. That needs to be said loud and clear. You'll hear people actually say that Jesus is teaching that we must love ourselves more in order to love our neighbors. It's exactly the opposite. Jesus knows we've got the loving ourselves covered. We're doing great on that one, okay? That's not something we tend to struggle with. When we're hungry, guess what we do? We find food. We, we, you know, we, we take care of ourselves pretty well. Paul says in Ephesians 5.29, no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it. I mean, we we take care of our own needs. We love ourselves. That is not hard. That is not hard for us to do. We are born loving self. Uh, From the fall of man, we are all about loving self. Jesus says, rather, we don't need to love ourselves more. Rather, let's take the standard whereby we love ourselves and begin to apply it to our neighbor. And that is where we realize how far short we fall. I mean, this is a crushing thing to think about. Imagine how much you think about your needs personally. Imagine how much you think about your dreams and ambitions. Imagine how much you think about your fears and anxieties in life. Imagine how much time you spend taking care of yourself and your needs. I mean, it just can consume us through the day. We can go time after time not even thinking about others, thinking so much about our own selves. And Jesus says, imagine, imagine taking that standard of love and beginning to apply it to the people we live with, the people we're around, the people we come in contact with on Monday morning at work or school or at home, and imagine beginning to have the thoughtfulness and the creativity and the passionate care that we have for ourselves and applying it to our neighbor. That would be a revolution if we could begin to do that more and more like Jesus did. But let me give you another way that we don't want to distort the golden rule. Turn, turn with me to the right even further, to James chapter 3, the end of James chapter 3, near the back of your New Testament. James chapter 3, 
Here is another reason why we fail at times to keep the golden rule. Now, this is a depressing paragraph because a lot of sin is listed here, but let's, let's read it here. I'll, I'll read it for us. James 3, starting in verse 13. I'm going to read into the beginning of chapter 4. James 3, 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But, now here's a failure to keep the golden rule right here. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, 4.1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Look, look there at verse 2. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. It's an extreme example of a violation of the golden rule. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Well, let's think about it. We, we need to hear the bad news before we hear good news in this regard. One of the things, perhaps one of the primary things, that keeps us from loving our neighbor as ourselves is the sin of coveting or idolizing something. And when I over-desire something, when I have too much of a desire or love for something, and another person gets in the way of that object, it's a guarantee I'm going to treat that person without the kind of love and respect that that person deserves. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight. Why do we fight and quarrel? Why do we have drama? Why do we have issues? Why do we say things we shouldn't say in relationship? Why do we fight and quarrel? We have all kinds of reasons. A lot of them are excuses. But when we dig underneath the soil, what do we find? You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. One of the primary reasons we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves is because we love something more than our neighbor. We're trying to either use our neighbor or get something from our neighbor or the neighbor's in the way of something we covet and crave. And so the more I crave that thing and the more you're in the way of it, the more I'm going to treat you as less than I should. Does that make sense? The more someone's in the way of my idol, the more I am going to be likely to fight and quarrel and be not loving my neighbor as myself. So again, do you see the fundamental issue is what we love most. If I love Jesus most in my life, and I know we're not living in perfection here, but if I'm saying if Jesus is at the top, if, if Jesus is rising to the top of my affections, then there's no longer a way I need to use you to get what I really want. I, you're not in the way of my idol. I've got God. He, he is my Lord and Savior. I have him. He's with me. He will never forsake me. And now he can empower me. He can empower you to begin to actually love those who are made in his image. I can begin to actually love my neighbor as myself when I'm no longer living for other things, but when I'm living for him. When he is number one, I am then freed to not use my neighbor, not try to get something from you so I feel like I've got what I need. I've got what I need in Jesus. And now I am freed to begin to love my neighbor as myself. Now, I'm, gonna mention, I'm not going to mention the name of the book, not because I don't want to. I just don't want to even distract you by the name of the book. This is representative of a lot of books that go under the label of Christian. I'll just tell you this. It's a Christian book about marriage, and it sold a lot of copies. And you probably have heard of it. I've read most of it. Many of you have probably read some of it. 
So this is a, well, a very, very best-selling so-called Christian book on marriage, and I'm just going to give you a couple of quotes from it because it's very well read, and it's also a good example of a problem here, a distortion of the golden rule. Let me quote the book. Again, this is a, claims to be a Christian book on marriage. Quote, uh, could it be that deep inside hurting couples exists an invisible emotional love tank with its gauge on empty? Could the misbehavior, withdrawal, harsh words, and critical spirit occur because of the empty love tank? Could that tank be the key that makes marriage work? This idea is, if the husband can love his wife the right way, it will fill up her love tank, and she will feel loved, and then she will respond in kind to the husband. And then she will love her husband well, and it will fill up his emotional love tank. And when both of your love tanks are full off of each other's love, you will then have a great marriage. Now, that, that's the premise of the whole book, okay? That's how the whole book is premised. Do you see the problem with the premise of the book? It sold 20 million copies. That's amazing. It's still one of the best sellers. To this. I looked on Amazon. It's, it's ranked very highly on Amazon to this day. It's been out for decades. Well, what's wrong with this particular way of doing things? Let me read part of that quote again. Could the misbehavior, this is within a marriage, Withdrawal, harsh words, and critical spirit occur because of the empty love tank. Do you hear hear what it's saying? The reason you're sinning against your spouse is because you have an empty love tank. Whose fault is that? It's your spouse's fault. Now, do you see the problem with framing marriage that way? Honey, I would be treating you better, but my love tank is empty. If you simply just loved me better and filled my love tank up, I'm not kidding. That's the actual premise of the best-selling Christian book on marriage of the last 30 years. Not kidding you. 20 million copies. That's the premise of the whole book. Now, is that the golden rule? No, it's actually the opposite. It's the inversion of the golden rule. It's do unto others as you want them to do unto you or as they have done unto you. That is completely inverting the golden rule. Let me read another quote from that same book. This is referring to a man who at the time of this interview was committing adultery on his wife. It's in the, there's a whole chapter on this guy. Now listen to this, quote, His name is Brett. No offense to anyone named Brett. Okay, (laughs) quote, I sympathize with Brett, who was committing adultery at the time of this interview. I sympathize with Brett, for I have been there. Thousands of husbands and wives have been there, emotionally empty, wanting to do the right thing, not wanting to hurt anyone, but being pushed by their emotional needs to seek love outside the marriage. I'm going to read that again. Listen to this. Thousands of husbands and wives have been there, emotionally empty, wanting to do the right thing. Why are they emotionally empty? Because their spouse has not filled up their love tank, right? So the, the wife here has not properly loved him. So his love tank is running on empty, this poor adulterer, poor guy. He's running on, he's emotionally empty, wanting to do the right thing, not wanting to hurt. He doesn't want to hurt anybody. He's a good guy deep down as he commits adultery. He, doesn't, he wants to do the right thing, not wanting to hurt anybody, but being pushed. He's a victim, being pushed by their emotional needs to seek love outside the marriage. Now, a lot of problems. We could just stop the sermon and do a counseling session right now on the problems with that paragraph. First of all, please don't refer to those desires as emotional needs. That comes from the world of psychology. It doesn't come from the Bible. What I need is, I don't need my wife to love me. I need Jesus. I don't need your affection. I don't need anyone's affection. I I need Jesus. That's what I need. If we're going to talk about needs, the only thing we need if I'm burning at the stake What I need is not even another breath. What do I need? I need Jesus. So let's be wary of referring to our desires as needs because could those become coveting idols that we need and then we fight and quarrel? Yes, okay. 
So David Powelson, who wrote the book um, Seeing with New Eyes, David Powelson's a solid guy. He responds to this very book, and he writes this. Fallenness ingrains the perception that our lusts are in fact needs. Our lusts are now named needs. Empty places inside where others have disappointed us, the empty emotional tank construct is congenial to our fallen instincts. It makes us feel good about our fallenness. It's not transformative. It leaves what we intrinsically want as an unquestionable good that must be fulfilled. It not only leaves fundamental self-interest unchallenged, it plays to that self-interest. So I hope you can see here, the golden rule must arise from a deep love for God. It doesn't come from how our spouse or friend is loving us first. It comes from how God has loved us in Christ once and for all, and for all of eternity He has. Point number three, the golden rule is not based on how others have treated you in the past, whether good or bad. You'll see these points are related, but not identical. The golden rule is not based on how others have treated you in the past. Turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. We'll start in verse 27. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 27. Luke 6, verse 27. But I say to you, Jesus speaking, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. There's the golden rule again, verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Now again, the fundamental way that unbelievers, and we were all unbelievers at some point in our life, the fundamental way that our natural unbelieving self works is like this. It's the inversion of the golden rule. I treat you how I perceive you are treating me. If you treat me poorly, I will treat you poorly in return. If you treat me well, I will treat you well in return. And Jesus says, no, the golden rule is not based on how others have treated us. It is based on how God treats us. Look at, okay, let me give you point number four. Stay in Luke 6. Point number four goes right along with that other one. Point number four, the golden rule is not based on how others may treat you in the future. The golden rule is not based on how others may treat you in the future. Let me reread verse 31 of Luke 6. As you wish others would do to you, do so to them. Let's skip to verse 34. And if you lend to those from whom you expect, this is in the future, whom, whom you expect to uh, receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Now, do you see that? Unbelievers 
go, okay, if I'm nice to this person, if I lend to this person, I, I trust that in the future they will give me back my money, and therefore I'm happy to be generous because they'll give back to me. So here, the golden rule is not based on how others may treat you in the future. I'll do something nice for you, you'll do something nice in return for me, which is how most self-help books are sort of structured, right? Like, I do something nice for you, you do something nice uh, for me. I'll just give you an example. I saw this on, on YouTube a while back. There's a, he's not a believer, he's not a Christian, uh, a, a popular sort of, I guess you would call him sort of a self-help guru kind of person, not a Christian. And this is the example he gave. I'll probably butcher the details, but this is what I remember him saying. And this guy's made millions of dollars doing what he does. Successful businessman. He said this, listen, if you ever walk into a room full of people And do you want to be the kind of person when you walk into a party or walk into an event or a big family gathering, do you want people to go, oh, hey, how are you doing? Good to see you. The people are out back. You you can go see everybody's outside. See you later. Do you want them to kind of dismiss you when you walk in? Or when you walk into the event, do you want people to go, oh, man, they're here. Oh, man, this is great. And they come and get, oh, I want to hear about you. He goes, okay, which do you prefer? Now, of course, all of us say, well, we would rather be, you know, we want to be liked when we walk in a room, appealing to our self-interest, right, our ego. And then he goes, okay, now let me tell you how you become that kind of person. I started off as a nobody. He said, I came here from another country. I grew up with nothing. He said, okay, I'm working for this really powerful guy. I just had this low-level job. I was working as almost like a nobody for this really powerful person. And I found out his son was, I think, sick in the hospital or something like this. He said, I asked the guy, what can I do for your son? He said, well, I I went and visited him in the hospital. I went and helped his son out. And this was a huge deal. He said, later, I, I go talk to the boss. The boss can't believe what I did for, for the son. He said, this is amazing. He said, if you want any favor from me in the future, just call it and I'll give you whatever you want. A couple months later, he calls in a favor, favor, it leads to his promotion, and it leads to massive business success. That's the message. He's not claiming to be a Christian, but that's, that's self-help, right? The idea is, do you want to boost your own ego or esteem or position? Do you want to, you want to go up? Okay, then serve people, because if you're nice to them, they will probably reciprocate and be nice to you. So if you want to get somewhere in the world, just be really, really nice to people, go out of the way, and eventually it will lead to your exaltation. Now, do you see That's not the golden rule. It's not based on how others may treat you in the future that we do these kinds of things. Now, let me go back to the the unnamed Christian book on marriage, okay? Let me quote it again. Quote, we want to meet our spouse's emotional need, and we reach out to do so. So, we 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 want to meet our spouse's emotional need, we reach out to do so. In so doing, His emotional love tank is filled, and chances are he will reciprocate. You hear that? So the wife has a tough marriage. Here's the advice. Wife, begin to love your husband very well. Go out of your way to love him. And as the months go by, what you will find is chances are he will reciprocate and begin to love you back. When he does, I'm quoting, when he does, our emotions return and our love tank begins to fill. Now let me just read a criticism Hang with me here as I read an extended quote from David Powelson responding to that very idea. Listen to this. The author taps into a deep instinct in human nature. If you give people what makes them feel given to, they will tend to give back. If you pay attention to what rings the bells of your spouse or parents or roommates, kids, boss, coworkers, then you'll treat them better, and they'll probably treat you better too. At the same time, if you ask them for what you want in an open, less demanding way, that they'll probably do better at giving you what you want. On the flip side, spouses or parents, teachers, managers, salesmen, pastors, and other counselors who don't pay attention at all to those who make others to what makes others happy will mistreat others and create alienation. Next quote. Unwittingly, 
Unwittingly, the author of this book exalts the observation that even tax collectors, Gentiles, and sinners love those who love them into his guiding principle for human relationships. Now, if you're getting lost there, do you get that? Jesus says non-Christians treat each other in accord with how they're treated. This so-called Christian author made the premise of his whole book of marriage based on how Jesus said non-Christians treat each other. That's an astonishing thing for a book that sold 20 million copies. Let me continue reading. This is the power that makes his entire model go. This is the instinct that he appeals to in his readers. If I scratch your back, you will tend to scratch mine. If you're happy to see me, I'll tend to be happy to see you too. So the book teaches you how to become aware of what others want and then tells you to give them that. Identify the felt need and meet it, and odds are your relationship will go pretty well. Well, Let me read two more brief quotes. Is the principle that Gentiles love those who love them really the key principle for producing marital success and happiness? The answer to each question In this paragraph is a profound no. The author's model is premised on a give-to-get economy. I will give to fill your love tank, but in the back of my mind, I'm always considering whether and when I will get my own tank filled. Now, the reason I took extended time to read about that particular thing is because very popular idea, it's very prevalent even in so-called Christian books, and the premise is actually lacking the gospel itself. It's not, the gospel says this. This this is the gospel in light of what we just heard. We treat God thoughtlessly. We do not honor God as God. We dishonor Him continuously in our natural state, dead in sin. We love His creation more than the Creator. We worship the gift over the giver. We insult God. We think little of God. We casually use His name in vain, and our heart clearly treats God as less than His gifts. We worship them, we serve them, we adore His creation, and we ignore the Creator all day long, dishonoring God. If God were to treat us in accordance with how we treat Him, we would get eternal justice, which would be being cut off from His goodness and under His wrath for all of eternity in hell. But God does not treat us as our sins deserve. We just read that in that psalm. If he were to count iniquities, who could stand? But instead, he loves sinners who treat him horribly. He sends his son to die for sinners in their place and bear his judgment. He then forgives sinners, transforms sinners, reconciles sinners to himself. He then adopts rebels into his family, turns them into faithful, loyal sons and daughters, and then plans an eternity of everlasting and ever-increasing joy in his presence for us. Now, if that's true of us as believers then that means we don't ever dream of treating others the way that they have treated us or the way we hope they will one day treat us. No, we treat others the way Jesus has treated us. We treat others the way God in Christ has treated us. That is our need. Our need is not an emotional fulfillment with a relationship. That's not a need. It's probably, it could become an idol that we covet. Instead, the need is reconciliation. The need is forgiveness. The need is a new heart with new desires. The need is knowing God, spending eternity with God. That's what we need deep down, and that is freely offered to us in the gospel. So point number five, point number five, the golden rule is meant to devastate us and lead us to Christ. The golden rule is meant to devastate us and lead us to Christ. 
I'm going to make you turn again here to Luke chapter 10. So turn with me back to Luke chapter 10. We all know this story, but I want to read it in context of what we just heard. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10. Now before I read it, let me just say this. Listen to how the principle of loving our neighbor as ourself is meant to absolutely devastate our pride and lead us to the gospel and transform us. Luke 10, verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, just stop there. How many of us from birth could say, I've done that, I will live? Verse 29, but he, this lawyer, Pharisee, but he, desiring to justify himself for his lack of love of neighbor, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, that's two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay, when, I will repay you when I come back. Then Jesus asked the lawyer, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, do you see here? The law of God first is meant to absolutely devastate us. Do you feel that? The law, the standard of God, His standard of perfection, when you measure it against your life. Here's an illustration I heard the other day. Imagine you've got some elementary school kids who are in a classroom and this is a made-up illustration from another pastor. And imagine the teacher has to leave the room for a brief moment, which is a dangerous thing when you got the third graders, okay? So the, the teacher leaves the room for a brief moment, and the third graders start into a competition. And they want to have a competition about who can draw the, a perfectly straight line. Who can draw the most straight line out of anybody? With free hand, no cheating, who can draw the best straight line? So first you got this little boy draws a straight line. He's kind of squiggling on the page, and then a girl tries it. And then suddenly you got eight or nine kids. They're all trying to draw their straight line. They're trying their best. They got their, their pencils, and they're going on the page. And then they start arguing. Oh, mine, mine's more straight than yours. No, no, my, yours looks more crooked than mine. And then all of a sudden the teacher opens the door back up. If you're a teacher, you come back, and you never know what you are going to find. You come back into the classroom. What's going on? You come back into the room, and then all the kids are gathered around this one desk in the middle of the room, and they're all kind of in this debate. The teacher walks over. What are you all doing? Well, I clearly have the straightest line. What? We're competing to see who can draw a, a straight line, who can draw the most straight line. So all the kids have their papers and they're comparing it to each other and they're showing each other. And the teacher sort of smiles and goes over and gets a ruler. And the teacher takes the ruler 
and goes over and puts it next to the kid who thinks he's got the best one. The, the, the teacher puts the ruler next to the line and draws a truly straight line with the ruler. And suddenly, guess what you find out? Even the best straight line was not so straight after all. How do you know? Because we just compared it to the standard of perfection. See, in life, we spend most of our time comparing our squiggly lines with one another. Oh, I mean, that person did this terrible thing, and my goodness, look at the news. Look at these news stories. I've never done anything like that. would never even think about doing stuff like that. See, as long as we compare our morality with each other, we can sometimes find, we can always find somebody who looks a lot worse than we do, can feel good about ourselves. That's how we get a lot of the worldly self-esteem is we sort of compare ourselves. We feel like, oh, I'm boosted up. So long as we're comparing ourselves with one another, we, we truly lack wisdom. But when God's standard of perfection comes along and says, love God with all that you are all the time and love your neighbor with the passion and creativity that you love yourself, when the straight line is placed next to your life, how far short do each of us fall? The golden rule is meant to devastate us and to bring us to Christ and say, God, forgive me. Please forgive me of my many sins. And then, Lord, change me, cleanse me, and give me a desire to love God and to love neighbor like you have loved me. Transform me. Help me in my, in my fumbling baby steps. Help me begin to truly love you and to truly love my neighbor as myself. And please forgive me for all the areas where I have failed. In Matthew 7, if you're still there, I'm almost done with the message. If, if, you're, if you flip back to Matthew 7, don't miss this. You see verse 12? I'll read it one last time. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, now if you stop and say, Lord, I can't do that. Well, then it's a good thing we have verses 7 through 11 right before it, isn't it? Ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open. Say, Lord, help me to better love my neighbor as myself. Help me. And that's, that's the kind of prayer the Lord loves to answer with a yes, to pour out His Spirit and to give good things to those who ask Him. Well, it's not hard to move from this point to the Lord's table. Let's turn for the last time here to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As you're turning there, I'm just going to reread the points from the message just so you hear them one more time. 1 Corinthians 11 is where you're turning. Here are the five points one more time. Number one, the golden rule does not mean that you treat others according to your own tastes and preferences. The golden rule arises from a deep love for God, number two. Number three, the golden rule is not based on how others have treated you in the past, whether good or bad. Number four, the golden rule is not based on how others may treat you in the future, and number five, the golden rule is meant to devastate us and to lead us to Christ for forgiveness and transformation. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying that this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup." 
As you come to the table in just a moment, I want to remind you of a couple of things. First of all, if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, please do not come forward to partake of these elements. Instead, uh, you where you are should talk to the Lord. Ask the Lord to change your heart, to forgive you of your sins. If you are a believer and you're not walking in unrepentant sin, uh, please come forward. As soon as I'm done praying, you may come forward and partake of the elements and return to your seat. But what we are seeing before us represents the fact that Christ treated us infinitely better than we treated Him. That's what we're seeing here. This night is called by Paul the night when he was betrayed. This is the Lord that we are dealing with, the one who was betrayed, beaten, and crucified for our sins, and yet does not hold it against us if we will simply turn and trust in Him. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, it is so tempting to turn to the world's way of treating others. It is natural to our fallen condition. It even appears in books that call themselves Christian books. Lord, help us not to be self-help gurus or those who love others because they love us or love others so that they will love us, which is not even really love in the first place. It's a calculated, self-centered decision. God, help us not to ultimately calculate the behavior of others. Help us to set in our view the behavior of Jesus, who loved us when we were unlovely, who died for us when we deserved ourselves to die, who came not with a spear in His hand, but with a spear in His side, who came not to nail us to a cross, which He had every right to do, but instead to be nailed to a cross in our place and for our sins. The gospel is truly astonishing. It's the one place in human history where sin was thrown at a person and it did not bounce back. It was absorbed. All the weight of our sin and all the fury of God's wrath absorbed by the Son of God on the cross for all who will turn and trust in the finished work of Jesus. God, please don't let us take for granted the Lord's table. Help us to see your love, which is so clearly represented in these elements, that you gave, Lord Jesus, your body and you shed your blood to purchase the new covenant for all of your people. And I pray, God, that we would be moved by that and that we would sing appropriately and responsibly to that in just a moment. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.